On February 14th, it was announced that NYU would halt spending on single-use plastic water bottles by 2020. Yet there is some confusion surrounding the specific details of this initiative. Here's reporter Kate Hines with more. For the rundown on WNYU 89.1 FM, I'm Kate Hines. On February 14th of this year, NYU's Office of Sustainability announced that it would halt spending on single-use plastic water bottles and five-gallon water jugs by January of 2020 in an effort to make our campus greener and as waste-free as possible. This action was coined the bottle ban. It is estimated that the university purchases around 330,000 single-use water bottles each year, creating very large amounts of unnecessary waste. Since 2007, the university has been able to reduce its carbon emissions by 30% and continues to take steps in order to reduce this even further. But the goal is to eventually become a waste-free campus with carbon neutrality. The steps taken by NYU so far seem great. But in hindsight, there is a lot of confusion surrounding this bottle ban. An on-campus environmentalist group called Take Back the Tap released a letter to the editor with Washington Square News on March 4th. NYU Take Back the Tap is part of a nationwide movement that has been pushing for the elimination of single-use plastic water bottles in an attempt to reduce plastic waste and our carbon footprint on campus. They were elated to see the bottle ban put into action at first, but after further research, it turns out that despite the halt to purchase plastic bottles of water, in 2020 you will still be able to buy one on campus. I spoke to NYU Take Back the Taps campus coach Josie Reederer about their organization's efforts on campus and to get some more insight into the issues surrounding the bottle ban. So I'm with a campaign called Take Back the Tap, and it's through an international organization called Food and Water Watch. They basically work to enact very radical environmental policies, and one campaign that they have with campuses is this Take Back the Tap campaign. And Take Back the Tap is a national campaign to ban single-use water bottles on campus and kind of relinquish corporate control over our basic resources like water. It's not actually a bottle ban. That's kind of a lie. Um, It's really just that they're going to stop purchasing water bottles, but the university is still going to be selling them. So that means that vending machines will still have Dasani water bottles, All the campus stores will still be selling water bottles. It's really, I mean, it's a huge step, but it really means that offices will no longer be using them and events won't be having them. While this is good, we need to have a lot more radical implementations beyond just banning single-use plastic bottles as as a whole, but actually being a truly sustainable and um, just being a truly sustainable campus, I guess, yeah. The campus is planning eventually to initiate a zero waste plan, which is great. I mean, that's really, really awesome, but that might take a really long time to happen. I think the university still is is a private school and they're kind of a business. And so they rely, for them, it's making money that's the most important thing. So to end the sale of water bottles could be a financial sacrifice that they'd be making. but I would argue that that cost is definitely worth it. Um, so they could be doing things more quickly. They have plans to eventually take on what we like want them to, but that's going to take too long, I think. After speaking with Josie, I decided to go straight to the source of the bottle ban, 
I sat down with the Assistant Vice President of the Office of Sustainability, Cecil Scheib, to discuss the details of this ban and clear up some of the lingering miscommunications. One of the first things that we did after I came back here uh, last January was to launch a um, NYU community-wide crowdsourcing uh, input platform about NYU sustainability. What did people want to see happen? And we actually tried to phrase it in such a way so that people talked about how they could participate um, in becoming more sustainable and not just about what should NYU do for them. We got lots of great comments. We had thousands of participants. We had hundreds of ideas. And it was very clear that waste is on the minds of our community. And waste is very important to people. It's very visible. And people are, in particular, extremely concerned about waste from plastic. As a result of that, um, we convened a working group to look at sustainability. This was over 50 people. There were students. There were faculty members. Uh, you know, There were administrators, um, not just from here in New York, but over the global network. And waste was one of the top topics that that group looked at. So what is the bottle ban? So the bottle ban is meant to declare NYU's intent for what it does with its money. So NYU is saying, okay, after this date, 1st of January 2020, we will no longer spend NYU resources on buying single-use plastic water bottles. So that means in offices, um, could mean at events, and it could mean any place that NYU is spending money from its budget on a water bottle. Now, there are places that people can buy a water bottle on campus, whether uh, that's at Sidestein. They can buy them in, you know, campus vending machines. They can also walk right across the street from NYU and get it at any corner store or or the drugstore or the restaurant or whatever. I mean, we're not like a suburban or rural campus where you can only get stuff through the auspices of the institution. People are going to buy what they're going to buy. And that's one reason we focused on what we could do. But I also think that NYU is making a strong statement about what it chooses to do with its money and to not support uh, a way of getting water to people's mouths that takes over over, over 2,000 times the energy that just drinking tap water does. But I think the discussion about telling other people what they can do with their money is a valuable discussion, but I think a longer one and not one that we were uh, willing to make so rapidly after the initial ideas came in. In terms of NYU's ongoing relationships with any any particular beverage manufacturers. We have a relationship with the people who manage the vending machines, but we don't tell them what to put in there. We don't tell them what not to put in there, but we don't have a specific contract with Coke or with Pepsi or with any other uh, specific manufacturer. So the idea that we... Um, that by not banning water bottles, we're maintaining a specific relationship with any particular manufacturer. That's not correct. So when you talk about completely eliminating plastic, or maybe we can focus and just say plastic bottles, because I'm not even going to touch how about people's computers, how about their you know, headphones, right? So, But let's just start with plastic bottles. Could you get rid of them? And I think a zero-waste plan, which that is in, it really needs to start with the community input and what are people's needs. I firmly believe you can get water into your body without ever needing plastic. Mr. Scheib even discussed some ways we as students can be more self-aware of our waste output. I think it's a habit you build. I think if you're in the habit of buying water bottles, you just do it. 
And once you're in the habit of just having a water bottle and you just refill it, then you just do that. If you get in the habit of buying a certain product because it's the one that has less packaging, then you don't have to think about it anymore. I think it's important that you build, that, that, that people build things they're used to doing that they do naturally. If you have to make every decision consciously, people rapidly become exhausted and they stop trying. I also think it's important to focus on the biggest aspects of waste in your life first, right? And I did a little calculation um, just to try to get a sense of scale. And um, to be very clear, not trying to judge anyone's personal behavior because it's something I do too, right? But the carbon footprint of taking a round-trip flight, let's say, to Asia is enough energy to make enough water bottles to keep you in two water bottles a day for the next 50 years. So does that mean we shouldn't be worried about water bottles? Absolutely not. We all do a little bit. It adds up to a huge amount. So we absolutely have to worry about it. But from a personal perspective, when you say, what can I do? Go online, go to a carbon footprint calculator, put in the numbers about your lifestyle, and start with the biggest things first. It's just it's just common sense. you know. If someone said, hey, I want to do better in my class, what should I do? You would start with the most important things, the most impactful things, not something tangential. It's the same thing with waste. Start with the biggest things first. As a student body, we have the ability to make a change in our environment. There is clean water available in every NYU building, and reusable bottles are not hard to come by. And even though there will still be a presence of plastic bottles on campus, it does not mean we have to buy them. For The Rundown on WNYU 89.1 FM, I'm Kate Hines. Now, here are two audio walking tours from journalism students here at NYU. First, we'll enjoy an immersive Italian holiday at Italy. Italy is a massive marketplace nestled on 23rd Street in Broadway, featuring fresh produce, house-made pasta, numerous restaurants, cafes, bars, and, of course, a gelato parlor. Carly Maddox and Helena Gonzalez show us around. In the dim lighting of Italy, rows of fresh vegetables and fruit welcome you as you enter from the store's massive 23rd Street entrance. You're immediately swept out of the doorway and into the hub of half a dozen restaurants and cafes, flooded with locals and tourists alike. Nearly every product for sale has an Italian label, creating an immersive experience, as much as the smells of freshly baked bread, brewed coffee, and authentic Italian gelato. In 2010, Italy arrived here in the Flatiron District of New York City the first American venture of Oscar Farinetti's enterprise that began in Turin three years earlier. As you walk through this culinary marvel, you might not expect the Me Too movement to have reached inside these doors. But last year, sexual allegations surfaced against one of its early investors, famed restaurateur Mario Batali, leading to his divestment from the company. Still, the popularity of Italy is contagious, and the chain is growing, with new locations in Japan, Brazil, Germany, and most recently Sweden. Rows of rich olive oil draw your attention as you wind through the maze of Italy's marketplace. Making your way towards the exit, you are overwhelmed with the sweet smells of vignolas and tiramisu, edible works of art crafted by Italy's pastry connoisseurs. This flat iron market inevitably reflects the essence of the city it calls home, and as you leave, you're thrust back onto a hectic Manhattan street. As quickly as it began, your Italian holiday has ended. For The Rundown on WNYU 89.1 FM, this is Helena Gonzalez. And Carly Maddox. Have you ever walked by a house in the village and wondered about the history behind it? 
The brownstone on the corner of West 10th Street and 5th Avenue is notoriously known for its reported 22 ghosts and is thought to be one of the most haunted buildings in New York City. Devin Wright, Caton Lee, and Yodam Ponte present The House of Death. In the center of Greenwich Village sits what some call the House of Death, one of the most haunted houses in New York City. To anyone walking by this brownstone on West 10th Street and 5th Avenue, it seems like any typical New York landmark. Also known as the Mark Twain House, the building's alleged 22 ghosts would suggest otherwise. The house's most famous resident was Samuel Clements, more commonly known as Mark Twain, who lived here for one year in 1900. Though Twain died later in Connecticut, his ghost allegedly reappeared in his Greenwich home. Multiple residents have since reported witnessing a ghost saying, My name is Clemens, and I has a problem here I gotta settle. Twain, however, is one of the more benevolent ghosts of the house. In 1957, actress Jan Bryant Bartell moved into the house and documented feeling paranormal forces while living there. In her book, Spin Drift, Spray from a Psychic Sea, published in 1974, Bartell recorded seeing, quote, A substance without substance, chilly, damp, diaphanous as marsh mist or cloud of ether. I could feel my fingers freeze at the tips. They were numb, and yet they tingled. In the split second between contact and recoil, the scent came, fragile and languorous, and sweet, unbearably, cloyingly sweet. Bartel, shortly after, died in 1973, before the book was even published. One of the house's most horrific occurrences, however, was the murder of a six-year-old girl by her mother's then-boyfriend, a former attorney named Joel Steinberg. Steinberg, who beat the young girl to death, was later found guilty and convicted of first-degree manslaughter. According to some, the building right next to the house, at 16 West 10th Street, is also haunted by spirits. Bartell, who also lived in that building, reported paranormal activity in it as well. Isabel, a current resident of the building, said that while she doesn't believe the buildings are haunted, a neighbor of hers believes that they do live among ghosts. Whether you believe it or not, this quaint village apartment is more than meets the eye. For the rundown on WNYU 89.1 FM, this is Devin Wright. This is Caden Lee. And I'm Yotam Ponte. And to close out this week, we have another strange sound for you. This one comes from reporter Kate Hines. <laughs> 